Yalnız, 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 yalnız Kimsesiz değil, insansız Hello, this is episode number 112 of Turkey Book Talk. Those are the sounds of Bülent Ortaçgil singing Yalnız or Alone, dug out of the archives, a COVID-19 special. I'm William Armstrong here in an eerily quiet Istanbul. Thank you for joining. Perhaps you're listening on the commute from your bedroom to your living room. or Maybe you're ironing or doing the dishes or some such. I hope you're well despite the strange circumstances we all currently find ourselves in. This episode's guest, Ryan Gingeras, also joined from his home. Ryan is Professor of History at the Naval Postgraduate School in California. He's also a quite scarily prolific author of six books so far on the history of the late Ottoman Empire and early Turkish Republic. His latest was released a couple of months ago by Oxford University Press, and it's called Eternal Dawn, Turkey in the Age of Ataturk. It's probably his most ambitious book so far, and it really is a fine piece of work indeed, examining the conditions and various paradoxes behind the rise and consequences of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk from his role as commander in the Ottoman army during the First World War through to his leadership in the War of Independence, his declaration of the Republic of Turkey and the various nationalising, modernising and secularising reforms he pushed up to his death in 1938. But before we get into all that, let me remind you that if you haven't already, you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Perhaps now is a better time than ever to sign up, as presumably you'll have plenty of opportunity to browse the archive of transcripts of every one of our interviews in English and Turkish that signed up members get access to. The archive includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also receive access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a hefty 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. So forget finally diving into War and Peace or A la Recherche de Temps Perdu while you're stuck at home. You can instead take the plunge into IB Taurus's various Turkey and Ottoman history titles. Finally, as a member, you also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. So to become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. There are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Ryan Gingeras. We talk about the various controversies and landmarks of Ataturk's life and times later on. The book's title, Eternal Dawn, is loosely adapted from a line in the Turkish national anthem, and the book opens with a brief account of the rather paradoxical life of Mehmet Akif Ersoy, a poet who wrote the words to that national anthem. I started by asking Ryan Gingeras why Ersoy's life stands out as emblematic. Okay, the reason why people are interested in the era is because it is a story of a state and nation, or at least people believe it's Turkey in the 20s and 30s is this sort of Phoenix-like nation state that emerges from the First World War, reborn, stronger, more modern, Western-looking, etc., etc., And I don't want that to be lost, but I want to also underscore is that the realities of it is far more complicated and actually kind of quite troubled. And Ersoy is the epitome of that. And in some ways, so is the national anthem. The national anthem comes from a rather religious nationalist, one could even sort of say Islamist outlook on politics. It is really a rallying cry for 
Muslims uh, in the defense of the nation. And Ersoy himself himself was quite religiously conservative. And in terms of the ways in which he saw ethnicity, and ethnicity is a big trope throughout the book, the development of Turkish nationalism as an ethnic idea. Ersoy himself um, didn't identify necessarily as being Turkish. He was of Albanian descent, but more than anything, he was actually quite dismissive of ethnic nationalism and, and found it quite harmful to the notion of being a Muslim as well as one's devotion to Islam and had a really antagonistic relationship with Ataturk and with the Turkish Republic, um, lived much of his life in exile, was originally supposed to write a Turkish translation of the of either the Quran or the commentary, I can't remember right off the top of my head, um, but he burned it rather than hand it over. And he died sort of late into Ataturk's tenure as president and is actually brought back to Turkey as something of a hero and sort of kind of smoothing over this you know much longer period of dissent and, and criticism of the Republic. And I kind of wanted to emphasize that up front is that this is not a really clear cut story um, and that we have to really embrace both, I think, the top line myths or the top line emotive aspects of this history while also recognizing the deeper controversies or the, deep, the, the deeper incongruities of the period as well. In the book, you say that he was doing a translation of the Quran into Turkish for three years, and then he burnt it because he was outraged by the abolition of the Sultanate, which is a remarkable feat of uh, ideological purity, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's an. I mean, he's an interesting guy, and I think he's sort of typical of a lot of the dissidents of of this period. Uh, there's a nice little quote right at the beginning of the book. Uh, you say, quote, My affection for the complexities of Ataturk's era is among the main reasons why I wrote this book. For me, what makes the story of Turkey's first decade so compelling are its many intrigues and ambiguities. It's a fascinating, terrible and inspiring story all at the same time. I wanted the tone of the book to be ambiguous. I think that's one of the struggles in writing about the 20s and 30s is that I think there's already a really well-established narrative in people's minds who are even sort of even vaguely aware of the history that it is, again, this analogy of the phoenix from the ashes or the story specifically of Ataturk, which conforms really well to the sort of great man of history, a kind of Peter the Great, Napoleon, you know, sort of larger-than-life historical character. And his own biography, at least the sort of main lines of it, lend itself really well to a you know almost three act arc of development um, that's quite cinematic. And depending on what parts you cut out, are overwhelmingly positive. Whereas if you really bear down on the history and even sort of look, you know, not even that much more closely at Ataturk, it's a really much more complicated story. Illustrating that complexity, I think, is the image, really, of the um, War of Independence, which is obviously where Mustafa Kemal uh, made his name. Um, And you write that, quote, Those who followed events in Anatolia from the colonized world naturally possessed a very different image of Kemal. Uh, Writers and activists from South Asia to North Africa cheered Ankara's anti-imperial proclamations and celebrated each of the nationalist victories scored against the Greeks and the French. The glories enjoyed by the national forces represented more than simply the liberation of Ottoman Anatolia. Their successes were treated as victory for the eastern peoples one and all. That uh, is quite an interesting little passage because it also reminds us that in many ways that resistance that was led by Mustafa Kemal was uh, in many ways seen as a kind of almost Islamic resistance in a way to protect the uh, the Ottoman Empire. 
Um, and indeed, the strategy throughout the uh, independence struggle was deliberately vague, as you remind us in the book. You know, we tend to think now that modernity, secularism, republicanism was always front and centre all along. But uh, you remind us that it really wasn't. Throughout those years, Mustafa Kemal very much kept his intentions deliberately vague, really. So there was little talk of secularism, uh, no real talk of abolishing the Sultanate or the Caliphate. And in fact, many people supported uh, the national struggle because they thought they thought it was the best way to protect Islam, basically. It's a remarkable paradox, really, in retrospect. You know, the, I mean, a couple of things to unpack about this is how the world interpreted this, specifically people within the colonized world interpreted the war, how people within the Ottoman Empire did, and then what Ataturk actually thought. The way I try to present it is that the basic fundamentals of the struggle were indeed kept vague. I think largely for the fact that there was a strong consensus in, among what remained of the Ottoman Imperial Officer Corps, the bureaucracy, sort of the remaining sort of members of the political class of the Ottoman Empire in what becomes Turkey, but even sort of among different quarters just outside of the armistice lines in what would be today Syria, portions of Iraq and Palestine, which is the potential partitioning of what remained of the Ottoman Empire empire was something that people were against. And Mustafa Kemal took a very conservative, small sleeve conservative line on this saying, you know, we're going to fight this, which made the struggle really quite cut and dry and black and white if, you know, you don't probe it beyond that. And I think that that's one of the things that drew people's attention from abroad is that it, it fit very nicely, not simply as a kind of struggle for Islam, but a struggle between empires and colonized peoples. And it even went sort of beyond the realms of, of Islamic resistance or, you know, Muslim resistance groups. You know, for example, Michael Collins, you know, was the founder of the IRA, wrote in defense of Mustafa Kemal's national movement. Um, so did Gandhi. And Gandhi was a, quite of a fervent uh, supporter of what in South Asia was specifically called the, the, the Caliphist movement, which was not simply in support of Mustafa Kemal and his forces, but specifically the preservation of the Ottoman Caliphate and the Ottoman royal family's hold over the, the Caliphate. So it's not simply an Islamist resistance. It's really an anti-imperial one. I think one of the things that makes the independence war, the, the, the fighting between 1918 and 1922, particularly really difficult to unpack or essentialize you know, from it what would happen thereafter, is there are actually lots of different factions that are struggling over the future of what becomes the Republic of Turkey. But the most fundamental thing that the largest number of people could agree upon was to resist the occupation of outside powers, specifically Greece. You know, we don't really know what Mustafa Kemal's thinking was during this period. I mean, there are sources that say that, you know, he had long imagined this secular republic taking shape, but he kept it quiet. I mean, I think that you have to take that with more than just a grain of salt. But we do know that the Ottoman royal family and conservatives in Istanbul saw this as the last moment in which they would be able to retain any kind of power, especially in the wake of 10 years of rule under the Young Turks. And so I think rather than it being a struggle for a republic, it was much more of a power struggle for the retention of power among the last remnants of what was the Committee of Union progress or the Young Turk Party. Nevertheless, really, in, in subsequent years, 
secularism, positivism, republican nationalism became central to the ideology of the era. But again, one of the paradoxes that you touch on in the book and is there right through that era is the fact that this this new republic was based actually on a religious identity. It was a religious identity that defined the ideal Turkish citizen. Uh, you had to be Muslim, basically. And that, again, is one of those central ironies of the Turkish Republic. You have this official ideology of secularism, nationalism, but the defining trait of a citizen is that they are Muslim. And that is what underpinned the population transfers. Being a Muslim basically was an essential trait for anyone who uh, would rightfully consider themselves a Turk. That's right. And I think it's what needs to be mentioned is that it was an assumed trait. It was something that not necessarily was emphasized as being, you know, a part of the glue that held the nation together. But rather what becomes for in the forefront of this is the, the quite clear manufacturing of a, an ethnic or they often put it a racial idea of being Turkish, which, you know, is part of a kind of a, a longer thread that goes throughout the book, which is the ways in which this idea does devolve from late Ottoman thinking at least some one section of elite the elite philosophical outlook uh within the ottoman empire and in the in the in the teens and in early 20s so i wonder also you know how distinct really was mustafa kemal in his secularism or was he representative of a general tendency because we know that many others of his class and station shared his suspicion of islamic theology and conservatism and uh, there's a quote that i noted down from the book you say quote turkey in many respects was the intellectual realization of what many ottoman officials had pined for during the first world war and in this sense the kemalist revolution did not represent a total break from the empire it placed and indeed many of the reforms that were passed in the early republican era were they had precursors going back to the 19th century so to what extent can we say that mustafa kemal Ataturk was a complete break with the past i mean i would emphasize two things one is that he's clearly not a complete it represent a complete break with the past it, there's a great deal of continuity intellectually in the development of kemalism with the late ottoman empire and, and depending on what element that you're talking about with respect to kemalism some of it going back quite a bit of ways back into the early 19th century and this was especially the case with secularism although i think you know secularism can be teased out in a couple of different ways you know secularism as a kind of institutional political problem the idea that you know should clergy or should religion in general hold an institutional place within government within the state or other sort of much more kind of cultural or emotive elements of, of secularism that is a big part of what Kamalism is, whether it's, the, for example, the, the, the translation of the Quran or a religious garb, the banning of a religious garb is not something that, you know, it has some degree of precedent, um, but certainly Mustafa Kemal and his administration take it that much further than perhaps Ottoman reformers originally had intended. The second thing I would emphasize is that to understand Kemal's, and we have to look beyond Mustafa Kemal. I mean, Mustafa Kemal sanctified the creation of this ideology, but really it was a collective effort. And so a lot of the book is attempt to tease out this wider cast of characters who contributed to it. And so, you know, what you really find out is that Ataturk, if you want to assign him uh, a role in the making of his era ideologically, he's the one who approved of certain ideas or streamlined them, you know, perhaps adding certain certain elements to an idea ideology, but at its core, it was a broader collective effort and one that really is begins well before he appears on the political scene. 
I think it's worth um, also reflecting on the effectiveness of these reforms because there's a bit of a tendency in a lot of places to sort of look at things in black and white and say this is what happened and these were the reforms and the reforms were applied in a blanket way everywhere and everybody had a similar receptor they were received in a similar way by everybody everywhere and there was a resistance which was homogenous as well and um that's clearly not the case. A lot of the re- academic research over the last couple of decades has really emphasised this, the fact that there was a hugely diverse reception to, to what was going on. And mm. one of the main reasons behind that is that there was basically a lack of state capacity. You know, yeah. you can't really carry out root and branch reforms in remote areas of Anatolia when you haven't got many resources. You've got a limited kind of human resources as well. And um, you describe the Republican reforms in many ways as a half achieved revolution. That's a quote. You also say that many of the supposed achievements of the Republic were a little more than a facade. Social reforms favoured by Anchorage during the late 1920s and 30s often proved difficult or impossible to implement in many portions of the country. The ambitions harboured within Ataturk's Turkey were far from fully realised. Very serious limits weighed upon the Kemalist revolution right from the start. Building a secular, ethnically rooted and undivided Turkish nation, one strictly defined by Ataturk and his disciples, proved to be an impossibility in most portions of Anatolia. The limits to which the authorities could affect an absolute change in the morals, tastes and behaviour of its citizens were on display everywhere. Time and again, officials were forced to make compromises on issues that otherwise were considered ideologically too sensitive. Just talk about that aspect of things, you know, these quite severe limits on state capacity and how that meant that the reforms couldn't really plant hugely deep, deep roots. Well, I mean, this is actually where I put most of my effort in the book is to try to tell much more of a social history of Turkey. You know, often we see the history of Turkey solely through Ataturk's biography. And so when we talk about reforms, we talk about it purely as these articles of law that he signs without really understanding what, what it meant for everyday people, especially considering how diverse the country is to begin with. It's true. I mean, there's a spectrum of results. It's clear that the revolution and the emphasis here on revolution is important because that's how they talked about it. They talked about the revolution as a revolution, as you know, this period of time as being something akin to you know the the, the French Revolution or the or more importantly the kind of revolutions that were sweeping Central and Eastern Europe. The early Kemalists took a great deal of inspiration from fascists in Europe, from communists in in the Soviet Union, and later from from the Nazis as well. Those sorts of movements and those sorts of states were kith and kin to what they were trying to accomplish. But the reality is that there was a pretty broad set of outcomes for what happened between the 20s and 30s, and that overall, um, the effects were pretty modest, whether it's you're talking about the language reforms, secularism, whether one's talking about even the kind of modernism of the period, making it much more urban, you know, redefining the spaces and the kind of the aesthetics of everyday life. It was pretty limited in its effect. And it's true. I mean, probably the biggest roadblock was capacity. After all, this takes place during the midst of the Great Depression, um, which devastates the country. And so it's clear that Ankara didn't even have the money, let alone the manpower, to affect a lot of change. And it doesn't necessarily mean that um, this is the case for places that are remote. These are in places that are actually relatively close to major centers of the economy, major centers of power, experience real deficiencies in the ability of the government to affect change. Now, one of the major reforms, of course, was uh, Turkification. 
It was a major national project. It imposed itself really on the various diverse Muslim populations of the country, whether they've migrated there in recent years, like the uh, Circassians, Albanians or Bosnians, or whether they were indigenous Muslim populations like the Laz in the Eastern Black Sea region or the Kurds in the Southeast. And uh, you spend a long chapter at the end of the book on what Turkification meant for these various communities. And uh, they all received this process and they all engaged with this process in different ways, different levels of resistance, different levels of accommodation and engagement and right. uh, the longest part of that section perhaps unsurprisingly is on the Kurds just talk about that you know how did assimilation of the Kurds how did the Turkification policies that were applied differ from cases targeting Circassians or Laz etc what has to be understood is that there was a Kurdish policy developed for the Republic, which had roots in the immediate era, preceding era that begins to develop during the time of the First World War. And that among late Ottoman administrators, specifically, again, young Turk administrators, it was widely believed that Kurds represented as a bloc a cultural, social, political, and economic, in some degrees, even an economic problem in the country. And that their assimilation into a much more homogenized Turkish nation was really critical for the to state security for um, settling all national questions. And one thing that a lot of the literature that is available makes very clear is that there were these very broad ambitions, you know, from the start of the Republic to try to integrate the country. So, you know, specifically the Southeast, specifically trying to culturally homogenize Kurds, make them Turkish speaking, eliminate tribal confederations, a liberal eliminate what was referred to as sort of tribal culture in the region. And this was attempted through a variety of ways. And this is differs quite radically from other Muslim groups whether it's Alevis or Circassians or immigrants from you know, the Balkans or what have you, is because it was believed that these latter groups, you know, Circassians and Alevis and uh, Albanians, Laws, were easier to integrate since they didn't necessarily possess what many, you know, in elite circles believed were tribal elements or sort of, sort of tribal, tribal aspects of their culture. And so they had to, in some ways, they had to completely break down Kurdish society society in order to remake it. And that's not necessarily the case with Circassians and Balkan immigrants or even LVs. You know, there were sort of other much more specific challenges that they represented that it was believed could be mollified in less harsh terms. But the fact of the matter is, you know, despite these really grandiose plans and a great deal of violence that is used to try to enforce this program through the 20s and 30s, obviously the Dersim, um, the case of Dersim being the most blatant and the most violent in this process, it fails. It fails, you know, in a, in a couple of different ways. Some because of the, what we just talked about a few moments ago, because of capacity, partly because of resistance, partly too because when it came down to it, there was at least some degree of institutional either inertia or lack of maybe lack of will or lack of capacity. It's hard to say. But when we, when you look at the, you know, for example, the attempts to redistribute the the population. Um, of the Southeast, move Kurds out into areas that are more Turkish speaking or move Turkish speakers into the region. Um, these are really modest endeavors. I mean, there, there is, it isn't as grandiose as it was originally believed. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that not only was there a lack of money or lack of you know, resources, but that the actual efforts themselves end up being rather small or at least rather narrowly envisioned. 
but there is a change that occurs among Kurds as a whole and that you do begin to see the development of greater national consciousness, you know, far more than at the start of the 1920s. And one thing I try to emphasize is that Kemalism, or at least sort of the development of Turkey, shapes this nationalism quite a bit. In fact, early leaders of the Kurdish national movement that are really responsible for a good amount of the resistance that comes during this period borrow quite a bit from, you know, sort of the ideology or the outlook of Turkish reformers and Turkish nationalists themselves. You, know, you see it specifically with the codification of Kurmanji as a, as a language, for example, um, the use of Latin letters. So it's not necessarily a clear-cut story of resistance or of a, of a Turkification process that's complete. Um, by the end of it, there's a lot of open-ended questions you know, regarding how successful it was. And it should be said, too, that you know, our lack of sources, both in terms of state sources, but also sort of reactions of people on the ground is really lacking. And so you know, much of what I'm saying is kind of a preliminary uh, estimate of, of what this history is really all about. There's an idea that I've seen elsewhere that is sometimes suggested that the sort of one-man deification, really, of Ataturk really only got going in his later years, and particularly after his death. And it was then that Kemalism sort of ossified into a, a more rigid ideology. Uh, your book seems to argue against that somewhat. As I understand it, you suggest that really from the start, you know, the War of Independence and the early years of his ascent, Mustafa Kemal was really always the centre of attention and adulation and his word and his ideology was right from the beginning what went as policy. Just yeah. tease out that question, you know, to what extent is what we recognise today as a rather rigid um, Republican Kemalism as an ideology? Was there ever a period where it could have been perhaps a bit more flexible? Just tease that question out, really. I tried to kind of answer this, address this really within the four corners of the years of his rule, right? So it ends the story in 38. But you're correct that much of what we think about today as being Kemalism or Kemalist culture is a product of the post-1938 era. And so I, I did my best to try to limit discussion of that because then it becomes a very, very different book. It's already a very long book and I tried to kind of rein in you know, aspects of it that could make it that much longer. But yeah, I, I think this is one of the things that really surprised me as I began to really look, especially in the early 20s, is that Ataturk from the middle stages of the War of Independence was quite conscious of his public stature and was very aggressive in promoting a really larger than life public image. And that this becomes a really key component of his development as a political figure. And that already, I mean, there are signs of this kind of cultist devotion to Ataturk very soon after the end of the war. And you know, for obviously good reason. I mean, number one, the people of Turkey did not have political heroes on a scale of Mustafa Kemal before 1922 or 23. I mean, you could maybe say Enver Pasha as a close comparison, but if one looks at the profundity of what Ataturk, you know, Ataturk achieves in 22 or 23, defeating the British, defeating the Greeks, defeating, defeating the French, securing this treaty that recognizes the independence of the country, that that is undeniably far more profound than any of the achievements that one would attribute to Enver Pasha. So that, I mean, there's something that is at the foundation of it. But the other element of it is that he was arguably the very first and most clearly the most effective popular politician 
of the nation's history. I mean, if one looks at Ottoman precedents, there's really no one that has that kind of public presence that Ataturk has, you know, through his touring, through um, his, the interviews he gives, you know, through the iconography that begins very early on in the 20s of Ataturk. So there is a very early root to this kind of cultism that develops around him. And it's one that he very deliberately promotes and that one that his retainers or his, you know, the, his immediate disciples also latch on to and make it part and parcel of the political culture of the state and in turn sort of the culture of the country. And it, it becomes a really early dividing line within the political elite of the Republic of Turkey. And if you look at the split that occurs in the early 1920s at the start of the Republic, that's among the things that really divides people, is that you had other political figures, you know, the, your cousin Karabakir's or uh, Rauf Urbais, who were politically influential, who possessed relatively impressive resumes, who did not approve of this kind of deification or this sort of cultist culture that was beginning to develop around him. Now, I think the thing is, by the time you get to the 1930s, um, this becomes much more intermarried into the kind of iconography of fascism and the iconography of Soviet communism. You see it through the holidays that are christened during this period. You see it in other elements of the popular culture. And so you can't necessarily talk about how this culture develops without considering global context. And this is something, again, that I try to foreground within the book, is that Kamalism developed in some ways as a reaction to fascism and communism, and that there was a fear that if the beliefs of Mustafa Kemal wasn't codified, the young in particular would be somehow led astray into fascism or into communism, and that Ataturk himself could be overshadowed by these other greater figures on the global stage, whether it was Stalin or Hitler or, or Mussolini. So again, to really understand where that kind of, that element, that aspect of Kemalism comes from, both to sort of as a personality cult, but also as a as doctrine, we have to bear in mind that it is very much a product of you know the 20s and 30s and of the harsh ideologies of the period. Uh, one of the things that people sometimes talk about when thinking about this era is uh, some of these kind of wacky theses, these strange ideas that were floating around at the time, like the sun language theory often gets a lot of uh, paragraphs written about it. Uh, it's basically this idea that Turkish is the, the original core of all languages and, and all other languages kind of sprung from it. And uh, also more racial theories about how, you know, the whole world is Turkish and basically all races stem from the Turks and Central Asia. And as I understand it, as you describe in the book, uh, in the 1930s, Ataturk himself became rather taken by these ideas. Um, but now they've obviously sort of fallen out of fashion. Nobody really believes these things anymore. How significant were they at the time? And, you know, obviously people talk about them a lot when talking about this era, but are they right to do so? Or were they just sort of almost rather extreme and they didn't really have much purchase in real life? Or did they have an actual effect on the policies that were made? Well, I think first and foremost, I think you can't dismiss them as wacky as in being divorced from how people think about Turkey or Turkishness, Turkishness today. I, I would actually argue that 
while formally, you know, things like the sun theory is not something promoted within Turkish education, or you don't hear it uh, as a part of the, the, the rhetoric of how people think about Turkey at a popular level, elements of it remain. And I think that shouldn't be dismissed. But I mean, in terms of, again, sort of keeping it within the four corners of, of the period of Ataturk's reign, at an elite level, it's clear that the by the mid-30s, this is something that Ataturk personally invests himself in quite personally and quite intensely. It occupies, or at least it seems to occupy, an immense amount of his time at the expense, really, of actually governing the country. I mean, I think Eric Zerker said this, you know, quite a long time ago, is that it's important to think about sort of the 30s as a period of semi-retirement for Ataturk. And so really much of the, the state of affairs is being handled by people under him, while he personally is invested quite closely in issues of history and language and so forth. And that one ways in which it really begins to spring to life is in uh, 1936 and 1937 through two initiatives. One, the Alexandretta crisis or the Hatay crisis, and the other is Dersum. And that, you know, if you look at, as far as what we know about the decision-making of this period, the reasons why Ataturk very personally promotes this policy of annexation or attempted annexation of this portion of Syria, as well as this um, really violent crackdown against peoples in, in Dersum, part of it is that they represent a kind of actualization of the sun theory that he personally marries this sort of this idea or this developing literature that he plays a role in in authoring as a kind of an applied lesson in arguing that Alexandria you know should be a part of Turkey and the fact that Dersim is in fact always been Turkish from time and memorial you know in that it's something that has to be proven through greater government presence and cracking down against violent resistors and so forth so to sort of look at it as, as somewhat trivial or sort of pass it off as this kind of an ideolo- of, of fad, an ideological fad that's somewhat, again, typical of the time period. I mean, you can find somewhat analogous movements in, in way people are thinking about history and race and language and other parts of the world. It does have real world consequences. So it's worth thinking about it in that respect. It is something that very much powers some of the most violent elements of, of the country's history. Now, I want to bring things up to date, you know, the contemporary image of Ataturk is quite a sophisticated picture. And it always strikes me that the image really of Ataturk outside the country is quite different from the image inside Turkey, because, you know, outsiders, when they see him, they sort of first and foremost comment on him as being an example of secularism. And this is the thing that is basically, you know, defines everything that he did. And his whole political project was about this. In Turkey, it's definitely there and it's definitely appreciated amongst certain constituencies. But I think it's probably fair to say that he's more of a nationalist figure. He's embraced by different constituencies and the secularism is there for some people, but uh, it's not defining for everybody. And I think it's perhaps confusing for maybe people outside the country to to see this paradox. They think, well, there's maybe a religious conservative who actually also appreciates Ataturk because he was a, a kind of figure of national resistance. Tease out that, do you agree that there is this sort of difference in the view of Ataturk outside the country and inside the country? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, absolutely. I mean, I think why a person would acquire an interest in Ataturk or learning about, you know, Ataturk's time outside the country, I think is is sort of fascination with him as a reformer. 
And I mean, this is something I, I bring up in the introduction. I think one of the things that especially lies behind it is the belief that the, he represents a kind of model in the development of governments that choose the right path of modernization or, you know, westernization, you know, that, I mean, especially around the time of the Iraq war, I mean, this was something that you would hear quite a bit of, you know, a state like Iraq needing an Ataturk. And this is an idea that I think that is also braced not simply in, you know, North America or Europe. I think this is also something you would hear in the Middle East as well, you know, among, again, certain quarters of Ataturk as being the model ruler and Kemalism as a kind of model ideology. And so, you know, therefore, I think this is something that is why a lot of people would find him appealing, or at least he would attract people's attention. I mean, I know this is sort of digress. I mean, I, I wrote a short biography of Ataturk, and this was primarily the reason why I was asked to write it, in that the editors, you know, believe that he represented a case that was, would be informative and critical for any understanding of not simply Turkey, but the Middle East as a whole. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned it, that when I wrote it, one of the first notes I got back is there was not enough in it as of him as a as a reformer. They were hoping instead that the bulk of the book would be devoted essentially to, you know, his reforms from the mid-20s onward. And I had to explain that, well, in Turkey, one of the problems is, is that is actually somewhat secondary and that it's him as national hero that really is what often provides the kind of the gravitational force that would bring people's attention to him, that his role in leading the war of independence, that achievement unto its own is, is something that makes him a critical figure and stands as um, arguably to this day, as I think, as you point out, the greatest point of consensus within the country. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know, this is even something you could poll, but I would, I would wager quite heavily that the overwhelming majority of, of people in Turkey would first and foremost see him as that, as the father of the country insofar as that he secured the country's independence. And that the reforms to this day do spark controversy and are sort of seen with, I don't know if I necessarily critically is the right word, but that is there's greater understanding that to fully embrace the idea of Ataturk as the reformer comes with certain political risks, that there are aspects of that, of him, his character and his time that elicit quite strong reactions in people. It's the events after his death that make this element of Turkish contemporary culture so radioactive that his life, how people see him is kind of a tripwire or seen as a kind of marker for certain broader political or cultural social issues in the country. So if you identify as a Kemalist or if you identify someone, you know, with a bumper sticker that you love Mustafa Kemal, this is not simply a question of your relation to him as a historian historical figure, it's very much a statement about who you are in today's Turkey. And that's one of the things that, again, made writing this book a little difficult is to try to disaggregate the kind of baggage that he carries, a lot of which comes after his he dies and becomes of the as a result of the politics that unfold after he dies. Because in the end, I think the history of the period and the way people will see it, especially in Turkey, is a product of events or a product of sort of certain cultural cultural or social trends that are the results of, you know, the post-1938 period. That was Ryan Gingeras. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 112. While I've still got your ear, let me remind you to check out Turkey Book Talk's very excellent partner initiative, 
Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists Razier Akkoch and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that packages together all the major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Drop it into your email inbox every Thursday. Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some excellent puns. Search for Turkey Recap on Twitter to subscribe or follow the link that I'll put in our show notes, including at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. If you're a fan of Turkey Book Talk, consider becoming a member on Patreon to support us. Membership gets you that IB Taurus Bloomsbury book discount. Perfect, I dare say, if you're looking for more to read during these times of coronavirus. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive, and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. Also, do please rate or review Turkey Book Talk on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you use. Follow via Twitter or like our Facebook page. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So please send any recommendations, feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, stay safe and thank you very much for listening. Koca şehirde seni bulmak imkansız Koca şehirde bir tek ben mi böyle çaresiz Koca şehirde seni bulmak imkansız Yalnız